please open to the book of Job in your Old Testament. Job comes just before the book of Psalms. Job chapter 10, if you will. Maybe you are familiar with the story of Job. I think most of you are. As you well know, by the time you get to chapter 10, you know that Satan has been very successful in crushing Job's spirit. Job, at this point, is a deeply, deeply depressed individual. Job's desire for life is gone. No longer exists. There's no pleasure in Job. He does not get up in the morning and say, I can't wait for another day. No, it's quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. There's no craving for life in him whatsoever. And I think it's rather understandable when you consider everything that has happened to him. Let me recap for you. He has lost, this wealthy man, this healthy man, has lost everything. Everything. He's lost his children. He's lost all his property. He has lost all his wealth. He has lost all his standing in society. He's abandoned by all those people who once surrounded him, including his wife. In fact, in chapter 19, verse 17, he says, My breath is offensive to my wife. She really doesn't want anything to do with him at this point. You'll recall that it was his wife who said, Job, curse God and die. And Job said, I will not do that. In chapter 19, verse 19, he says, All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. So you see, the man is in in a rather dire situation. He's lost everything, and I, I do mean everything, including the people who are dearest to him. There are, however, four loyal friends who come alongside of him. And of the four, in particular three, are trying to help him, but in a process they accuse him. It doesn't make the situation any better. They mean well. They say, Job, you know, maybe you need to take some, some time and, and, well, and take a personal inventory. Obviously, you did something wrong, Job. You must have done something wrong before God because God would not do this to you if you were not guilty. You've done something wrong. You're not fessing up. You're not aware, maybe. Whatever you did, Job, it's coming back at you. And of course, that's not the case at all. But they're trying to help him. But in reality, they're making things so much worse. Have you ever been in a similar situation? Where you look guilty, but you're not. And people point their fingers at you, and you know you're innocent. It is the most uncomfortable position to be in. From Job's perspective, as you can imagine, from his perspective, this situation points to a very unjust God. Very unjust God. And so what we read in the book of Job is that he sways back and forth from anguish to faith in God. From, I can't believe this is happening to me, to, I have to trust in God. God is trustworthy. Back and forth, back and forth. God's abandoned me. No, God is with me. 
At one point, he calls God unfair. Another point, he calls God holy and righteous. And maybe you've been there as well. And as we get to chapter 10, which is only a quarter into the story, his despair speaks out. And in his despair, Job says, I loathe my life. I hate my life. He is in deep, deep depression. I would assume that you know that in these recent years there is an epidemic of depression, especially among the young. I read a stat this week that I believe it was 41% of teenagers actually say they hate their lives and they are depressed. 41. And teenagers are not alone. There's an epidemic of suicides because of depression. And we can argue that there is a lack of fortitude in today's average American. That we are sort of wimpy and, uh, well, we can't handle stress or we can't manage bad news. Well, I'm not ready to say that. I, I am ready to say this. Whatever the situation may be that has brought you to depression, you are depressed. And maybe your situation wouldn't depress me, and maybe my situation wouldn't depress you. That's not the issue. That's not the point. The point is, is that there is a pandemic of depression, even among those who profess Christ. People who know the Lord, people who have placed their hope in the Lord, and yet they suffer at times from the deepest ongoing depression. Job says, I hate my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. He's speaking to God. He says, that's right. You're not going to silence me. I am depressed. I hate my life. And I'm speaking from what's right in here, Lord. And you know, that's fine. It's fine to speak your heart to God. But be careful what you say. It's good to speak your heart, but it's not always good to just say whatever we want to say because we don't want to be guilty of accusing God of something that's not true, correct? Just as we do not like being accused of something that is not true, certainly we can't expect God to be okay with it. That we would point a finger at God and say, you, you, and falsely accuse him. Well, if you take a look at the text here, Job is simply saying, Lord, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And he's plummeting into depression because he doesn't understand why. It's not just the situation, but it's also the why. What can I do to change things? Nothing. Now, when faced with this sort of situation, and we look to God because our, our situation has shifted into a direction we did not expect, or maybe we found ourselves in a lane that was not anticipated, and things are not going the way we wanted it to go or hoped it would go, we find ourselves saying the same thing as Job. Why, God? Why? Sometimes we say, why me? Suggesting it should be somebody else, Correct? But not me. Why me? 
And if we're wise, we will take a personal inventory and say, well, did I do anything to bring this on? What choices did I make that led to these circumstances? Where was I right? Where was I wrong? We'll also ask ourselves this. Is there any personal, unconfessed, unrepented sin which God is trying to wake me up to by bringing upon me these adverse circumstances? Is there something that God is bringing to my attention through these very difficult means? It's a good question to ask, but that's not always the case. We live in a broken world. And in a broken world, bad things do happen. But please, don't just blame the world when bad things are happening in your life and you find yourself sad day after day. Ask yourself, Lord, is there something in me that needs to change, that I need to confess? Is there a habitual sin that I need to repent of and change? Ask yourself. Ask yourself. Well, take a look at what we see here in the book of Job. You know, before we get to chapter 10, let me explain a little bit of the background of Job. What we see in Job is that he delivers nine speeches. He delivers nine speeches. In 42 chapters, he delivers nine speeches. And the first one is in chapter 3, when Job does not curse God, but he curses the day he was born. He says, just that. Cursed be the day I was born. I wish I had never been born. That's how bad things were for him. And the last speech is in chapter 31, where Job defends himself yet again. And in between, you see Job's going up and down, emotionally, up and down. I trust, I don't trust. I can endure, no, I can't take anymore. Up and down. But notice something, he never curses God. He comes close. But he never denies God. He never curses God. And, and think about it. If anybody would be tempted to curse God, it would be this man who lost literally everything, including his dear children. Not child, but children. If anybody would be tempted to curse God, his wife comes along and whispers in his ear, Job, don't be so foolish. Curse God and die. And he says, oh no. The Lord gave, and now the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, nonetheless. Well, take a look at his speeches. At times, he speaks to God. At other times, he speaks to man. He's delivering these speeches, and we see here in chapter 10, one of those speeches. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, I will say to God. So he's delivering the speech. He's talking to God. He says, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to, to despise the work your hands in favor, the designs of the wicked? Now notice what he's saying here in a rather poetic way. Of course, this is a... True story, but, but written in poetic form. Here Job looks to God and says, Lord, I'm telling you, God, I am innocent. I don't deserve this. Why would you think, God, that it's a good thing to oppress me, of all people? 
Your spirit has worked so diligently in molding me, informing me, and now you're ruining everything you did. All that you created, you're destroying. And yet you're letting the wicked continue. Sometimes, knowing that people who are wicked do not suffer makes the suffering even worse, doesn't it? Say, hold it, Lord. I don't deserve this. They do. And if you're just, why is your finger oppressing me and not them? We always tend to look over the fence and see how green their grass is. Of course, you never see their water bill, do you? In chapter 19, verse 2, he speaks to his friends. Look at what he says. I'll read it to you. He looks to his friends and says, and says, How long will you torment me and crush me with your words? In chapter 13, verse 4, he says to his friends, You are worthless physicians. You're trying to cure me. You're making things worse. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. Sometimes he simply pleads for pity. He pleads for pity from his friends. And then he defends himself. In chapter 16, verse 2, he says, Miserable comforters are you all. In other words, have pity on me and just shut your mouths. Chapter 19, verse 21. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity for the hand of God has struck me. Chapter 29, verse 12. I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had no one to assist him. In other words, look at how good I am. I help the poor, I help the orphans. And you have no pity on me? Instead, you point your finger at me and say, I must be guilty. Let me take you over to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. In the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 2 in particular, the disciples come across a man who was born blind. You remember the story, correct? Sure you do. I preached on it this summer. Right? <laughs> and in chapter 9, the disciples look to Christ and say, uh, they, they, they ask Jesus Christ, who sinned? Uh, was it this man or his parents that he would be born blind? It's a good question, isn't it? And, and you can always ima- almost imagine that they knew the answer because how can a child sin before it's born? Right? So essentially you're saying it must be because of the parents. A parent sinned and now the child is paying the price. Right? The, 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 child, the child has to swallow the sour grape. How does Jesus Christ answer? Now, now keep in mind that the assumption here was that calamity that pain, that suffering, that disease is all for retribution. It's all the result of sin. And that's not always the case. It's not always the case. We live in a broken world. But this is how they thought. And so Christ answers, he says, neither. It was neither this child's or this man's sin or the parent's sin. So why in the world was he born blind, Jesus? And here's the answer Jesus gives. He says, he is blind so that the work of God may be displayed in his life. Oh, 
He's blind so that the work of Jesus Christ, the work of God, would be displayed in his life. And you know, we look at chapter 9 of John and we say, Thank the Lord, look how powerful Jesus Christ is. He healed the blind man. And we applaud Christ, rightly so. And we thank Christ, rightly so. But who here would want to be born blind and live up until your adult years blind in order that the work of God may be displayed in you? Oh, we're very thankful for this man in John chapter 9, but none of us, I would dare say, would want to be him. Correct? And yet, please understand that often the tragedies and the calamities, the difficulties you face are so that God would manifest himself to you or through you. That you would not know or see the hand of God unless you experience these things. Or that others around you would not see God unless you experience these things. At other times in his speech, Job simply complains about God. And then, almost with the same breath, he expresses confidence in God. And so again, his faith fluctuates. There's this ongoing consternation of what he knows is true versus what he feels is true. Does that sound familiar? I know this about God, but I feel this about God. And the two just don't seem to match. This is Job. So in chapter 6, verse 4, he complains. He says, the arrow of the Almighty is in me. My spirit drinks their poison. Chapter 16, verse 19, he expresses his confidence in God. He says, even now my witness is in heaven, and he that vouches for me is on high. He's trusting in the Lord. And so Job is on this emotional roller coaster. We don't know for how long this is taking place. I think it's safe to assume that this is uh, taking place over months. Keep in mind that at this point he's covered in boils. His whole body is covered in boils. Itching boils. He's sitting in a heap of ash, suggesting that now he's lost everything and he's poverty stricken. And he's taking pieces of broken pottery and scratching himself. Twice as a young boy, I was covered not wholly, but partially in boils. Developed an allergy. And if it was in today's time, there would be much more medical study involved. But back then, it was just Timothy grass. Your son is allergic to Timothy grass. The good news is that I didn't have to mow the lawn anymore. (laughs) The bad news is that I had boils all over my face, my hands, my arms, my torso. These pussy blisters that would break and would ooze. I was 12, and then I was 14. It happened again. My face was so covered in boils you could not recognize me. My eyes closed. My mouth closed. I had to keep a straw in my mouth for 14 weeks in order to simply be able to eat as it encrusted I remember eating Lipton soup 
every day for 14 days because I could suck that through a straw. I even learned to, how to eat a banana through a straw. It was not easy. But I did it. Boils. And though Job suffered much more than I, I have an idea of what it feels like to have boils all over your body. What an emotional roller coaster. And so Job's speech very clearly is filled with anxiety. And then times filled with hope. Jesus Christ, of course, addresses this roller coaster we often face when he explains in Matthew chapter 6, he asks this question. We all know it. Who by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Have you noticed that all your worry has not added a single hour to your life? In fact, it may have subtracted a few hours from your life, added a few gray hairs to your life, but it certainly did not add a single minute to your life. And so Jesus Christ concludes, because worrying does nothing good for you, he says, so do not worry. So what should we do? Well, glad you asked. Christ said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do not worry about tomorrow, he said. Why? Because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. So, stop worrying. Instead, do what? Seek him. Seek his kingdom. Seek his righteousness. It's the only option we have. Or, of course, you could go back to worrying. And it will get you nowhere. Worrying comes very naturally. Seeking righteousness does not. And so it is actually a volitional decision we have to make. I will choose to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness instead of worrying. It will not come naturally even to the most righteous among us. Take a look at the depth of his depression. We looked at verses 1, 2, and 3. Look at verse 4. He writes, he says, Have you eyes of flesh? He's talking to God. Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? In other words, he's deeply questioning God. He says, are you like mere men who can see only what's in front of you? Do you see what is happening to me? Verses 5 and 6. Are your days as the days of man or your years as a man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin? God, are you limited to my time and space? He knows the answer is no. So why, God, are you acting like you are limited by time and space? God, are you like man who likes to dig up dirt on other people? Who wants to just point out other people's faults? He's accusing God of being like a tabloid. Like the newspapers we see while we're standing at the grocery line. Who just exposes all and tells all. Every bit of filth about anybody. Whether it's the queen or the king or your latest celebrity. Is that who you are, God? Do you just see the bad and not the good? You notice here that Job is trying to put God on trial. 
and we think, oh, you better watch out, Job. What I say to you is, oh, do you do the same? Do you put God on trial? Who are you, God, to let this happen to me? I thought I was your child. And God says, exactly. You are. Look at verse 7. Although you know that I am not guilty, and there is none to deliver out of your hand. Job acknowledges that God is indeed omniscient, that God does know everything. He knows the truth about Job, but he questions God's integrity. He says, I'm innocent, but who can escape your hand? It's true. Who can escape the hand of God? Now, before I go any further, let me just point something out about Job. I find this amazing. I find this amazing. Remember, he's asking why, God? Why did this happen to me? Why is this happening to me? Never does God does Job ask God to restore all that he lost. I'm not saying you shouldn't or couldn't. I'm saying Job did not. And neither does he ask God to heal him. I'm not saying he could not. I'm saying he did not. Job is only interested in why, God, are you doing this to me? He does not ask to be healed. He does not ask for God to restore everything he lost. He simply says, why, God, is this happening to me? Because this is so uncharacteristic of what he knows about God. And so Job thinks that all that's happening in in his life right now is going against all the promises of God. God said, I will be with you, that I am your friend, that I am the good shepherd. So why, God, are you doing this to me? But you know what strikes me in verse 7 is that he says, I am not guilty. Is Job overstating his innocence? Would you ever say to God, I am not guilty? Have you ever said that to God? I am not guilty. Well, there's different ways we can understand what Job is saying here. Let me suggest you a wrong way. Could it be that Job believes that he has done no wrong whatsoever? That he is actually literally guiltless? That he is sinless? No, that's not what Job is saying here. Because uh, several times in the book of Job, he admits that he's a sinner. He admits that he's a sinner now. He admits that he was a sinner when he was a young man. He mentions it in chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 13, chapter 14. He knows he's a sinner, so that's not what he's saying. Well, some people would suggest that, well, Job is now a repented man, that he's confessed his sins. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning, chapter 1, chapter 2, Job is even giving sacrifices for the sins of his own children. He's trying to cover all the bases. Well, they didn't repent, I'll repent for them. It doesn't work that way. But Job is trying to cover all the bases. Can it be that that's what he meant? That he's no longer guilty, that he's been absolved because he's repented and confessed? That he has spent enough time in the confessional box that now God no longer holds him guilty? Well, keep, keep in mind that the Bible says that in order for us to be absolved of our sins, the price for the sin has to be paid. It's not just a matter of confessing and repenting. The price has to be paid. And, and keep in mind, too, that just like us, we can be sure that, there, that Job was not able to confess and repent of every single sin he committed. Impossible. He did not, you did not, I did not. 
So that can't be what Job means. Now, some people look here and say, well, Job is not guilty because he's depending on God's imputed righteousness. In other words, I'm not righteous, but God has placed on me his righteousness. And that sounds plausible, but I don't think that's what he's saying either. Because at this point, at this stage in redemptive history, that concept of imputed righteousness was not yet clear. I don't think that's what Job is saying. So what is he saying? I think he's saying what most of us say. He understands that he is guilty. That he is a sinner. But he doesn't deserve this much punishment. I'm guilty, but not that guilty. Does that echo in your own heart? Job is looking at his situation and he says, Lord, this is not fair. This is not just. What you're doing to me, Lord, would be the equivalent of the death penalty for jaywalking. I'm not that guilty. I don't deserve to suffer this much. Now keep in mind that it was God himself who said in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, he said to the devil himself, he said, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God said he is a blameless and upright man. And so when Job says he's guiltless, he's just echoing the words of God. It doesn't mean that he's never sinned. It means that he's a man who pursues what is of God with all his heart, soul, and mind. It's not that he never fails. It's that the track record, the goal, the norm for Job was the pursuit of the things of God. And because that was his character, because that was his lifestyle, he says, Lord, I'm guiltless. I don't deserve this degree of punishment. And God would agree. He's blameless and upright. Now, in today's social political world, we have the reverse, don't we? We have crimes that are not that are not punished. Here, Job claims to be over-punished, making him then come into a situation where he falsely accuses God. Now, keep in mind, his friends were falsely accusing him, and what did he do? He got angry. But now he's doing the same thing to God. He's falsely accusing God. And for some reason, it's okay in our own conscience to accuse God, but we hate when others accuse us. My friends, notice what desperation does to us. Sometimes when life becomes so difficult, it becomes so despairing, we accuse God of doing things he cannot do. God cannot be unjust. God cannot lie. And God cannot stop being good. God will not abandon you. He is the good father. And if God abandons you, then he stops being good. God cannot stop being good, therefore he will never abandon his children. But when desperation strikes, we begin to accuse God of things that just are never, never true. Because they can't be true of God. Well, I want you to see that here, at this point, Job hates his life. But I want you to see that his faith does win. 
And I point it out to you because it is the scriptural text, but it's also, prayerfully, what will happen with you as you face dire times in your own life, whether it's depression or just simple struggle. My hope for you is that, like Job, your faith will win. Job's depression lessens. It lessens when he becomes aware of who God is. It lessens because he begins to understand that he does not understand God, but he can always trust God. Lord, I don't understand what you're doing, but I do know this, I can trust you. I can trust you. I don't know what you're doing. It makes no sense to me. Why would you do that? But I do know this, Lord. I can trust you. You see, his depression begins to alleviate. His faith begins to win. When he begins to trust God, even though he doesn't understand God, he improves to the, to the degree that he understands the greatness of God compared to his smallness. His condition begins to change when he understands that God is trustworthy. If you read in, towards the end of the book in chapters 38 through 41, there Job very clearly encounters the magnitude of God. And that's when Job is able then to better accept the truth of God's goodness and God's purpose and God's wisdom. When he sees how big God is, you know why there's so much depression? I don't want to belittle anybody's depression, but I, I, it's serious. It's, it's painful. But one of the reasons why there is a mania of depression in our culture is because we do not see the bigness of God. And when we don't see the bigness of God, we don't trust him. We don't see him as good. We don't see his purpose. We do not see his wisdom. But if you go over all the way to the end, to chapter 42, Job begins to accept his situation without question. Why? Because he sees the bigness of God. Notice that God never says, well, Job, let me tell you why this happened to you. Never. God simply says, see my bigness. And look at how Job responds. Chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things. 42, verse 3. I have said things I did not understand. 42, verse 5. I had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. In other words, now I have a deeper comprehension of who you are, God. Knowing that there is a greater purpose... Things begin to change in his own soul. And now he, before was unaware, now Job, Job's situation changes radically. And he is able to rise up from his depression as he trusts in God. And notice something. He accepts his situation without depression, even though his situation has not changed. The situation didn't change. 
He still lost everything. He's still covered in boils. And yet, he's, his depression is alleviated. It just comes off of him. Why? Because he sees the bigness of God. He sees that God can be trusted. He sees that God is wise and purposeful. And he says, although my situation is not changed, I no longer have to hate my life. Because he sees God. He says, oh, I can trust him. He knows what he's doing. I still don't care for it, but he knows what he's doing. In Job chapter 13, you see his, his, his faith beginning to win. Verse 15, he says this, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Wow. Though God kill me, I still will place my hope in him. That is just not humanly rational. Job's devotion excelled beyond human reason. There was nothing right here to attract Job to, toward God. And yet Job is faithful. Why? Why is Job faithful even though God is not very attractive at this point? Well, God may not be doing what Job wanted, but notice something. Job here sees who God is. He sees the magnitude of God. He sees the authority of God. He sees the power of God. He sees how God is sovereign and how God controls his world. He sees the character of God. He sees the position of God over all of creation. Notice that Job is not coming to God. And listen, if you want to see your sadness melt away, begin with this. Do what Job did. He came to God because of who God is, not what he can get from God. A part of our problem as Christians in America is that we come to God saying, what are you going to give to me? And if he doesn't give to us what we want, we walk away sad and depressed. Job is not saying, what can you give to me? He's saying, God, I'm coming to you because of who you are. Because of who you are, not because of what I can get from you. And when I see who you are, I can trust you. And so he does. And his life changes. His situation does not. But he's a whole different person. This simple truth, my friends, I believe will, will change your entire view of God. It will affect the way you worship God. It will affect your obedience to his word. It will affect your attitude towards church. It will affect every aspect of your life in this world before the eyes of God. You'll be able to say, you know something, in light of the bigness of God, there's nothing too demanding of me from God. I will give him my all in all. You will be able to echo the words of, uh, of Job and say, though he slay me, I will still place my hope in him. My friends, this is Job's deep depression, uh, uh, depression deep expression of hope. From depression to expression of hope. Make sure I get that right. Notice one more verse. Chapter 19, beginning of verse 25, we see the great confession of Job. 
Now keep in mind that the book of Job, historically, is the oldest book in the Bible, right? It's the first um, written book of the Bible from our understanding. So in terms of the history of redemption, this is very early. And yet, look at what Job writes, what he says. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last, at the end of time, right, at the last, he, my Redeemer, will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, that's when I turn to dust, right? Yet in my flesh, though my body deteriorates, he knows something others did not know. He says, and though my flesh is destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints, my heart yearns within me. Job makes this enormous confession of faith. Job knows that he has a redeemer. One who will take him back. One who will rescue him. Job knows that there is one who is on his side. Job knows, even though he doesn't have a Bible, the Bible's not yet written. He knows he has a redeemer who is going to rescue him completely. And notice, he says, I will see him with my very own eyes. My Redeemer, not just any Redeemer, but the one who will redeem me. And though right now he is separated, though right now he has no health, he has no wealth, he is separated from the presence of God, so it seems, he knows he's not separated from his Savior at all. His Savior is right there with him, though it doesn't feel like it. And so Job says, I know. Not I guess. Well, I figured. No, he says, I know. You see that his faith is winning. Though his body will turn into dust, he knows that one day his body will be made new and he will stand before God in the flesh and he will see God with his own eyes. And he comforts himself with this promise. Longing for that day when soul and body are going to come together again. And Job and God will come together again. I myself will see him with my own eyes. This is Job's greatest comfort. And may I add this, it's not only his greatest comfort, it's his only comfort. His only comfort. But it's also his sufficient comfort. It's sufficient. It sees him through. It pulls him out of the deepest depression. This is Job's assurance. Let me close with this comment. We see Job's devotion. We see in his surpassing hope. And we see in this assurance. What lifts Job out of his sadness. Devotion despite circumstances, hope despite condition, assurance despite situation. My friends, if you're living sad days, if you're wondering, what's all this about and do I really want to continue? If you're depending on medication to see you through from day to day, 
Let me urge you to begin here. Devotion to God despite your circumstances. Hope in Christ despite your condition. Assurance of his promises despite your situation is the beginning of your recovery. Job's faith did waver. Job's days were marked with, I believe, but help my unbelief. And he suffered drastically. But through the unseen grace of God, he always regained his footing, and he never lost his balance completely. Satan used every weapon he could against Job to make Job fall. But it was foiled. It was foiled by God's hand in Job. And the faith of Job was purified. The lessons that Job learned, I'm sure he never forgot. As many years as he had after this, I'm sure he never forgot these lessons. Uh, Let me read one last portion of scripture to you. Job 23, verses 10 and then 12. But he knows the way that I take. This is Job speaking. He knows, God knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Aren't those beautiful words? I treasure the words that come out of the mouth of God more than I treasure the food that I eat three times a day. And boy, don't we take pleasure in our meals, most of them? And Job says, you know, the words that come out of God's mouth to me are more delightful than those meals I eat at the table every day. And so Job went from, I hate my life, to I have hope in life, when he saw the bigness of God. And I hope that's an example for all of us here, every day. Our Lord and our Savior, we thank you, because you are the good God, and you could be nothing less than that. And for that, we praise you and put our trust in you. Amen.